Without yeast, there's no bread. There's no beer, there's no wine, no sake, no mead, no pulque. Given the rather extensive efforts by humans across the globe to better organize the production of all of those things, it's fair to say that without yeast, there's no civilization, modern or otherwise. Or if there is, it's hard for us to imagine it. Today we'll visit Lassa Holmes, one of the founders and former partners of Homer Brewing Company and a legend in Alaska beer circles, to explore the brewing process from start to finish, always circling back to the most important variable, the yeast. From KBBI and Homer, Alaska, my name is Jeff Lockwood, and it's time to check the pantry. significant human yeast interaction almost certainly took place with fruit. Yeast eats simple sugar and turns it into carbon dioxide and alcohol. Fruit contains simple sugar in abundance, and anyone who's left a bowl of overripe berries out knows the distinct alcoholic aroma that arises in just a few days. The other obvious candidate is honey. Grains are a more forbidding environment for yeast. Their carbohydrates tend to be complex and unfermentable, at least by the species of yeast we're looking for. You can, at least with wheat, just mix it with water and let whatever wild yeast and lactic acid bacteria are around do their business with it, generating sourdough that you can then use to leaven bread. But the liquid product of sourdough is not especially delicious. Early humans knew they could do better. So they did. There are three main ways they found to break down the sugars and grains into a form the preferred species of yeast could thrive on. The first, most famously used in Peru to produce the corn-based chicha, involved chewing on ground grain, taking advantage of digestive enzymes in saliva to convert a portion of the complex carbohydrates into simple sugars. The second method, most associated with Eastern Asia, uses a mold called koji for the same process and is typically used with rice. Koji is also a key ingredient in the enormous array of fermented soybean products. The third method is the most familiar to us, and that is malting. Malting is simply sprouting grains in water. The sprouts convert the complex storage sugars into the simple forms they use to grow, and fortunately for us, the favorite food of our favorite yeast. It's impossible to know much about the earliest history of this process, how many places independently discovered it, how it spread throughout the world, how it was refined by generations of brewers. But as soon as writing appears on the scene, the Sumerians were using their new technology to write down beer recipes that used very similar techniques to those in use today, implying that the principles had already been mastered. Early on, too, it was discovered that using the cakes of yeast left over after making beer to ferment wheat bread produced a loaf that was lighter and sweeter than sourdough. Bakeries and breweries were intertwined until the isolation of the yeast responsible for both by Louis Pasteur in the 18th century made it possible to begin to culture specific strains of yeast that were better for making bread. The airy and soft white breads that dominate now date from this event. So do the many strains of yeast that are used today to deliberately produce beers as different from each other as a sparkling delicate pilsner and a weighty imperial stout, using the same ingredients in each. Some good water some malted grain, and thyme. So do you do all your brewing outside? Yeah, you know, at this point, it's um, more convenient. It's a big enough scale. It, uh, I mean, while we lose some temp in the winter, it's a big enough scale that it's not too much. Oh, you even do it in the winter outside? Yeah, like mostly. Oh, wow. <laughs> like, like I don't brew in the summer. Uh, we're just about to get started again for the brew season. Did the last batch in kind of late spring this year. I try not to brew in the summer. Occasionally I'll brew a batch or 
too just of something ceremonial, flower growing, or does it get too hot in the summer? It does. So it's the yeast, a balance of uh, microflora, not just the yeast, but also bacteria. It goes out of balance for the natural way that I brew, which is old school deal. Because beer uh, brewed otherwise would tend to spoil. Because it's too hot. It's too warm. The, the microflora abundance changes. It gets kind of out of balance for what we like to drink, you know, for you know, human palate. Cetobacter gets going really well and, you know, et cetera. So. Get some nice vinegar happening. Mm-hmm. So that's been changed with modern refrigeration, but I don't employ that. So you don't use refrigeration at all? None. Are you using uh, brewer's yeast or are you using wild yeast for the most part? I'm mostly a yeast rancher. Okay. So I, uh, I culture and work with different cultures, but I occasionally dabble in wild fermentation. Okay. And occasionally it dabbles with me. <laughs> so basically you're cultivating something like a sourdough starter except using beer, basically. That's right. And just like a sourdough starter, when we work with the wild stuff, there's not just yeast. There's also bacteria. So there's a whole, whole gamut there. Like this barrel here had a smoked, what we call a Rauch beer, a German word for smoke, a smoked lager. It had a different yeast component in it than we were going for originally. So we let it just continue as a wild ferment. And, you know, who knows how many strains have gone through it, but this had a number of seasons in the cellar. I just wrecked it out of this this spring. I couldn't even tell you how many different yeast and bacteria have had their turn. <laughs> <laughs> so when you're when you're starting with something like this, do you have do you have a shelf full of different starters, or do you start with just barley and water, or how how do okay. you start how do you start a beer yeast? Well, so there's two main forms that you can commercially purchase cultures in a liquid form or a dry form. Okay. That's the general thing. There's You basically have to build it up from whatever you, you know, you, you only get a small amount. So dry is pretty easy because the yeast population in the dry yeast is huge. And you literally, um, for small-time homebrewers, you can go with just dry. And commercially, you can buy enough to do that, and and that's uh, like, you know, it's a cost trade, because it costs a lot, but you can literally brew 100 gallons and pitch, which is the term for adding the yeast, you can pitch the dry yeast and ferment the whole thing without even doing a starter. But you pay for that, and um, the number of strains that are produced that way are pretty minimal, but there is an amazing amount of strains of yeast that you can buy commercially now. We live in such a wonderful time that way. Used to be you had to do your own work on all that, and I've done it in the past, and occasionally I will salvage a yeast from something and grow it up myself. But I start with typically a liquid culture. They come a couple different ways, but I've been mostly getting these strains from Y yeast that come in a smack pack. They're a foil pack, and it has a little nutrient pouch in there. Mm-hmm. And you smack it without opening the container, and it releases it and feeds the yeast, and they start to actually ferment in this pouch. And then the pouch expands out as it happens, you know, and, uh-huh. uh, and, then, you, and then I add that to a gallon starter, and then I add that to a three-gallon starter, and then I add that, depending upon what I'm doing, up to a ten, this 10-gallon. So I have a whole series of... Uh, Vessel. So this is my starter vessel right here. Okay. So I'll get that rock in and then add that to the cooled wort, the actual batch of a barrel or a barrel and a half at the most. U.S. beer barrel is 31 gallons. So like those fermenters over there, those are a barrel and a half. So a lot of times that's what I'll brew. This one here does two barrels, a little more than two barrels even. This is an impressive array of stainless steel. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of a stainless steel. Steal a hulk, <laughs> <laughs> but but the way that you the way you talk about constantly upsizing the batch, like that's exactly like making sourdough bread. It's exactly like that. Yeah. So this is the mash tun right here. Okay. This so. is this is this is the part I, I want you to talk about this because I've I dabbled in brewing a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, I started out I think like everybody does with the mix. You know, or, you extract. Know, the, yeah, yeah, the extract. Mm-hmm. And I 
messed around with the with doing it with grain a few times, and I built a mash ton out of a you know a cooler, cooler with, some, yeah. <laughs> with, yeah. with the drainage pipes and everything. Yeah. And it really wasn't very impressive. Hmm. Um, and I'm almost I'm very I'm certain that it was because I didn't really understand the temperature thing because hmm. as I understand it, the temperature of the of the mash is like. Yeah, it's a, super critical. It's quite the variable. Yeah, too low, and um, it doesn't convert enough of the stuff, and you know you'll get a watery product too high, and it'll get too unfermentable. So, like, it'll end up too sweet, and so it's quite a range that you play with, and that's one of the variables as brewers we get to play with that affect the final brew. So then is your is this mash, is this heated? or is So it... I wrap it in insulation. Okay. So the tank above is what's known as the hot liquor tank. That's where we heat the water. And so we do a single-step infusion, we call it. Uh, sometimes we do multi-step, but it's an infusion, which is just adding the water and the malt together, and we don't add any extra heat directly to the mash tun. Okay. But then we use hot water to sparge, and we may do a uh, roust with extra hot water to bring the mash up another bump as another step, and it's... Okay, so what, wait, what's sparging again? So sparging is hot water rinsing the whole mash. Okay. So we're drawing off the bottom and then adding hot water into the top. Okay, so Basically you, so like you drop the... Basically like drip coffee. Okay, yeah, so you drop the... You, you give it the first shot of water. And drain that off immediately? No. So you so you you mash in with the with the water. You ma- you marry the malt and hot water. Okay. That's your your point. You're going for a target temperature. Okay. And then there's a rest. So the enzymes that are particularly active in the temperature you hit are cranking in that time, and it needs a little time to happen. It's slightly exothermic. So it's part of the reason why I can pull this off outside in the winter. Because it's winter. actually generating. It's actually generating heat. a little bit of heat. Mm-hmm. So then after 45 minutes to an hour of resting, then we're adding in hot water and pulling off the bottom. We do a short thing in German called the Vorlauf, but it's a recirculation. So we pull off the bottom and put it back in the top for a little bit just to get it to clarify a little. Okay. So it's the natural husks that are left on the malt that, and as well as the stainless steel false bottom, but between everything, it creates a filter bed. So we're just trying to keep the solids behind and draw off the wort, okay. the liquid. And it's then just, what, what's the temperature range that you're looking for this to happen in? Does it, does it differ depending on, you know, if you're trying to make, say, a, a, a pale ale versus if you're making a lager or if you're, you know, a porter or whatever? Yeah, so it's all different. And in my book, there's no wrong. It's just going to be different. You know, okay. if, if you... Mash in, if you hit a mash temp of 148 degrees, it's going to be pretty fermentable and it might get pretty dry. It's one of the variables in that, right? And if you go at 158, it's going to be pretty sweet, end up less fermentable. Okay. But it'll have more mouthfeel and everything in between. Now, that's one variable, but guess what? The yeast is a whole other variable. Strains will ferment it differently. Literally, you can make one wart. And I've done this many times and pitch into different fermenters, different yeast, and you have different beers. Really? Oh, yes. I remember at the time when I was trying to get my head around, you know, the whole business of mashing and everything. And, and, I, and I was attributing almost all of my failures to not controlling that process correctly. But it could have been that could have been the ferment. That it was actually the yeast. and Yeah. I mean, it is actually easy. Like sometimes I've ended up like actually a couple years ago, I ended up with a wild ferment. Because um, it, it finished out really sweet, and I was like, man, what the heck was going on? My yeast was cranking and everything. But that's how I figured out my thermometer was busted. <laughs> it was reading off, and there was a little bit of the mercury or the red alcohol up high. Uh-huh. It, it separated out. Something had happened, and it was off. And so I had mashed in, you know, I'm not sure how many degrees higher, but it was in that high range. Uh-huh. To where it left the wort unfermentable. And is it unfermentable because the sugars are too complex or just That's because right. there's too many of them? Too complex. Okay. Yeah. So the temperature determines what kind of sugar actually That's right. winds up being in the, That's right. in the final product. Yeah, there's two main enzymes, the alpha amylase, beta amylase. And one is more active in the low range, one's more active in the high, and there's a crossover between them. So you get a whole variety of mouthfeel and... Uh, dryness, you know, sweetness left over, alcohol amount, all of that is is some of the variable there in the brewing process. And so a lot of the textural characteristics of any particular beer are going to be started 
that's right. by the temperature of the that's board. Th again, that's one of the variables you got, and it's a big one, but not as big as the yeast. Okay, so we have taken it out of the mash tun. Yeah, so we mashed, gave it a rest, did a little recirc, and then we're sparging, okay. rinsing it down in into the kettle. And the brew kettle here, then we strike fire direct as soon as we get enough in there to do it. Okay. And then what goes on there is some caramelization. It's one of the reasons I really like direct fire. This is the original one I started Homer Brewing Company with right here. Oh, right on. But, history. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're actually boiling it at this point? So at this point, we are bringing it up to a boil, okay. caramelizing it, and we're going to boil it. Yeah. And th this is where we add any uh, other any other vegetation, any flowers, any, you know, typically hops, right? Uh -huh. But that's not the only thing I like to add. There's a lot of different herbs I like to put in. Like in, what? In the brews. Well, like locally, um, I work with yarrow, uh, goldenrod, fireweed, nettles are a big one. We do a nettle brew every spring. Mm -hmm. You know, and, any edible <laughs> plant is fair game if you ask me, and they're all unique. And I'm at the point now where I'm really trying to blend together the various ones that I've uh, studied over the years individually, and because I find a blend, hops are one of the few, one of the only plants that on their own, without anything else, give a wonderful balance to a beer. Mm -hmm. Nettles does its own in its own way, and yarrow in its own, they, they all have their own thing, but I'm finding that a blend of some of the local flora uh, works better. Works better. Um, and the other thing I wondered is, uh, do, those, do they have the same antibacterial properties that hops do? So some of them have as much, and many don't have any or very little. No. So like, for example, we do a nettle brew every year. We call it nettle cream tonic, and it's not at all like a hopped beer, and it doesn't keep like a hopped beer. We are on a mission to distribute that beer and get it drunk before it turns every year because it's not very stable. How long are we talking about? Uh, a number of weeks. It used to be uh, it would turn really fast. One, one great thing about it, though, is it also is way faster maturing. Okay. Hops actually are very slow to mature in a brew. It takes, you know, in my opinion, about three weeks for it to not be quite so green where this nettle brew literally right out of the fermenter you can carbonate it and drink it. Wow. And yeah, I mean, within a few days, it's like not going to get any better. It's phenomenal. It's like spring. It's the essence of spring, really. I mean, you can't keep it back. It's like just bursting. Does <laughs> <laughs> anybody up here manage to grow hops at all? I mean, I know they're a Pacific Northwest, like it, they're huge. Well, I'm actually on year seven of only brewing with local hops. Nice. For the hop beers, I do hops, uh -huh. which at this point is this year's. Eh, it's like 70% of the beers I've brewed. At one point, I was kind of more down to 40. I was pretty heavy brewing without hops for a while there, and now I still maintain a lot. But lately, I've been, you know, with this wonderful supply of, you know, local hops that I've been picking every year, I've been brewing a lot more hop beers. That's great. I, I didn't know they had finally found some strains that would grow up here. I'd always heard that. Uh, the strains aren't the problem. It's the conditions. So what really did it for the hops around here were the high tunnels. Okay, that's what they're doing in high tunnels. Yeah, they're all in high tunnels. Yeah. Yeah, th the first time I was able to do that, this guy, Denny, um, out East End Road in like the late 90s, he had a high tunnel. And he was the first I knew that grew hops in, in enough quantity. And man, that made a nice, nice beer, except I had a lot to learn because local hops, I thought the best was to just get them fresh and put them right in. But it turns out that wet hopping, like they call that, it takes a load of them to get any bitterness and never really get the real, there's a, there's a curing process in the drying that goes on. Oh, okay. And they get concentrated and develop and you really got to do that oh, to, right. I mean, to get, you know, good bitterness that you're looking for. Not to say that wet hopping isn't, you know, valid and and, you know, it's just, it uses a lot of hops and you really don't get the same bitterness at all. So the first time I did that, I was kind of like, wow, this is good and floral, but man, we didn't get enough bitterness. There's not a lot of structure to it. Yeah, it was kind of disappointing. So when you when you get them from here, do they do they provide them to you already cured, or do you cure them yourself? No, I, I go pick them and then and then dry them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How long does that take? Well, it's a lot of labor. It is a lot of labor. It takes a while. Um, the picking is the easy part, it turns out. But then you gotta 
it's a lot of work to lay them, to get them all clear of leaf and debris and stuff okay. and off the vines. Like a lot of times you just cut the vines, you know, you do a big vine cut and then take them home because it takes a long time to actually pick them, mm. you know, hand-picking okay. little individual flowers, <laughs> you know. And it's sticky and, you know, and the, the sweet thing is that um, there's natural drugs coming off of the stuff and you get kind of high. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's like, a, it's you know, hops are very soporific, so they kind of put you to sleep in, in a way, but there, there's kind of a euphoria. You get this kind of like lightness, like, oh, nothing can hurt you. Like I'm up on a 15 feet off the ground on a ladder picking these things, and I, I got no worry about falling because I'm like floating <laughs> in a cloud. <laughs> Hops are fun that way, but yeah, pick them off. It's a lot of work, you know, getting them all and then uh, laying them out on screens. I've I've got up up in the peak of my cathedral roof there. I got some screens I do, and it's it's an ideal drying condition, so it happens pretty fast. They all go in the brew kettle while you're. That's Boy, right. Different amounts of time, different varieties. This I remember this from mm-hmm. from my brief mm-hmm. <laughs> my brief homebrew career. It's yeah. like there was sixty minute hops and thirty yeah. minute hops, yeah. and yeah. you know, and and depending on like if I remember correctly, like the earlier hops, those are more for for bittering, and then later was more for like the floral aromatic. Yeah, uh, and flavor, yeah. correct. Yeah, there's the whole profile. It's like the stuff that goes in the beginning is going to extract more of the bitterness. And a lot of the um, floral components will boil off, right? So the stuff you add later will capture some more of the floral and, partic- and flavors, you know. Mm-hmm. And then we add hops even at the very end after the boil's done where we do a whirlpool to get them all to settle out. And sometimes we even add into the ferment or sometimes straight into the kegs of beer. Isn't that gives you like just... Floral. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, really nice floral. Is that dry hopping? That's called dry hopping. Okay. I knew that. I knew mm-hmm. a bunch of the West mm-hmm. Coast breweries were mm-hmm. all into that these days. Yeah. And do you filter this when you drain it out of the brew kettle or...? Uh, you could say that rough. You see that screen right there? That's kind of a dam. And so we get a whirlpool going and then I drop that screen in. Okay. And, it, and if you look in the kettle here, you see it's got a dish bottom there. So it'll fall down over that. In the whirlpool, the hops will go to the middle and settle out more. Oh, okay. And then we draw off the side. Uh Aha. So it's it's not a true filtration. It's it's a rough kind of filter deal. Gotcha. Yeah. So with that, by not actually hard filtering the wort, a lot of mouthfeel and subtleties make it through. And likewise with the beer process, we don't do any filtration. Okay, so we have taken it out. It's going to be, what, around... Around the boiling point. Yeah, by the time we're drawing it off, we're down to, you know, 190, okay. you know, 200 maybe, you know, depending upon okay, now what the happens. wind's blowing. Now what happens to it? <laughs> so then what we do is we uh, manually pack it in. You know, if we had one more level of gravity, we could we could uh, uh, drain it directly, uh, but <laughs> we've kind of run out by this point. So I set up a fermenter. Right here, like I said, brew season hasn't started quite yet, but so we bring it in and, and add it in the fermenter and then chill it. And then uh, once it's reached, you know, uh, the pitching temp that we're going for, which is a whole game. Yet another variable. It's another big time variable. You have the yeast strain and then you have the, the wort that you pitch the yeast strain to, but then you have the temperatures. Okay. And presumably every different yeast strain is going to have a different temperature it's going to want to get pitched in? Definitely. And a different profile that it will leave you with, depending on, depending the, on the, the, temperature. the temperature. Yeah. Where, you know, a strain could ferment just lovely, uh, nice and cold. It'll make, you know, a brew that's very subtle and clean palate. But then if it gets up into the warm range, it'll get more fruity and all this other character will come out. And same yeast, same wort, but different temperature range. And it literally can get, uh, for a particular yeast strain, it can get high enough to where I would say it's too high to where it actually develops higher alcohols, fusel alcohols. These are the components that give like medicinal uh, smell or alcohol, high alcohol smells, Band-Aid even sometimes, and major hangover contributors. So I'm trying to avoid that like the plague. But it's exothermic. The yeasts are, you know, breaking down the sugars. There's energy released. And so it can build its own momentum. So you can start at one temp and then it can rise, and it can rise up into the higher alcohol developing point oh, wow. on its own accord. So it's really a whole babying thing and a whole real art in communicating 
with the yeast, with the temperature, the conditions, the size of the fermenter, the particular geometry of it, because it's a surface area to volume ratio in terms of how much heat it, it will get rid of naturally. Okay. You know, so there's all this that comes into play about it and to what point and how much you oxygenate or aerate the wort. So the yeast in their multiplication phase need oxygen to multiply so it's actually are you doing this in a closed fermenter or an open this is an open fermenter with a, a loose fitting lid so the yeast is basically generating a layer of carbon dioxide on that's the right that- a bed that that protects it and, okay. and the key to doing that to keep clean beer that will keep is just doing the primary and then racking it into closed vessels as soon as fermentation has subsided. So, you know, before that, that bed of CO2 that's on top, which is heavier than air, so before that can get disturbed and allow any other microbes to get in, or air that would encourage growth of Acetobacter. What uh, what temperature range are you generally going to look to pitch your yeast at? So there's two main yeast strains that we'll talk range about, and that's the lager strains okay. and then the ale strains. Are all Up until this point, ale and lager is basically made the same way. So, yeah, I mean, that's there's so many ways of doing it. This right. is just one way we're talking through here. And right. for a lager, um, there tends to be some other approaches that um, I didn't talk about in this process. Okay. Uh, uh, but that's kind of fallen away a lot, too. The, the malts have become more developed now. Yeah, there, there's some different approaches called decoction. You know, we okay. what decoction is. So you're actually boiling some of the mash and adding it back in. Okay. okay. And, that, and that develops a whole other deal. And I do do that occasionally for special lagers like a Bach or a Meritzen. But similar, pro- pretty much the same process, you could right. say, right? So then the the lagers, they call them bottom fermenting yeast, and it's not really true, but the, the, the head that rises on on the batch we call a croisin the foam layer that's fully yeast in an ale that's really you know gets a big rising head in a lager it doesn't do very much like when i'm maxing out a fermenter with volume you can put quite a bit more in there for a lager than you can for an ale because an ale comes up and makes a much more active bigger head so the lagers are the lower temperature fermenters and the ales are higher temperature. And there's a whole range and there's overlap. In fact, here's a fun thing called a thermometer, and that's your typical ranges right there. Okay. So from 46 to 58 for the loggers, from 60 to 72. But the truth is, is they overlap more in here. Mm-hmm. And you can ferment a lager at ale temperatures, but you're gonna get a total different product. But that's there's nothing wrong with that. It's like uh, Anchor Steam. Steam beer was developed by these lager yeast that were in San Francisco and California, and mm-hmm. it was so warm, they they evolved fermenting it at higher temperatures, and it's just a fruitier, you know, just beer. A different style. Yeah. But the lager yeast were evolved by the monks in, in ice caves over a long time, you know, fermenting cooler and cooler. They just developed that way. Right. So, you know. Isn't there, aren't there also ales that are that are fermented at lower temperatures? That's that right. A Kulsh has done that way, correct? Yep. It goes both ways. There's no wrong in it. It's okay. just kind of what are you going to call it and how's it taste? Do you take both lagers and ales out of the primary fermenter as early as possible, or do you? Yes. Okay. Yes, although a lager ferment takes longer. So where an ale ferment, I depending upon, it could be from as little as three or four days to as much as a week. Lager typically is more like a week to two weeks. And I only do the lagers in the cold of winter. Now we're taking it out of the primary fermenter and you're putting it in a secondary. Is that typically going to be a keg? Is this, is yeah. this going to be its final home? Well, not exactly final. Um, so it is the secondary. Um, so these half barrel bung side kegs, these are old kegs uh, known as Golden Gate. Like when you have the tap for the keg, you got the key to the Golden Gate. steel it's what replaced wood this is the first metal beer keg that replaced wood okay they actually had the tap system already in wood barrels at that wood kegs at that point so it just kind of was the next stage of then all stainless steel and that but the same tap system so these have a a bung in the side Mm -hmm. just like the old casks did and so with that i'm able to gravity rack siphon with this uh, silicone racking hose here and go right into 
the bunghole, fill it up full and bung it right up. So that's one spot, one one place where you can do any late additions into the secondary. So herb sacks, hops, that's the dry hopping point. But the Golden Gate kegs, although they're outdated and no, most people don't use them anymore, they're great for the process that I do because they draw off the bottom and they don't clog up. So I can put whole hops in there. Mm and not have to have them in a sack or anything like that. And I get, you know, roll the keg around and get major florals out of it. And it doesn't clog up. And is that, is that typically going to be the same sort of container that a larger commercial scale brewery is going to use? Yeah, these are the standard of the industry still. Like okay. this, this keg um, size known as a half barrel. Is that mostly so because you can actually deal with it if you're a person? That's correct. I've been about the weight of a beer keg for my adult life. Yeah. It's 150 pounds. That's your average person can deal with it. Where a full barrel would be unmanageable really. Right. You know. So yeah, so it's a half barrel and a US beer barrel being 31 gallons, that's 15.5 gallons. Okay. What I do for tertiary then or for the serving vessel then I use these five-gallon Cornelius kegs okay. or the three-gallon ones, too, you know. I'll rack out of that into these. So they don't get, they don't get carbonated until they get, it, get put in there. Well, I use a combination. I, I often will do a little bit of priming in the kegs. Okay. So you add a little bit of wort or corn sugar in to give the yeast another little hit. Then when it's bunged up, it'll ferment again. Or I rack early enough um, in the ferment that there's still a little bit of residual, and I keep it warm for a little bit, and then roll it back in the cold cellar. There, I always get at least some natural carbonation, but I've kind of taken to just making up the last bit of it with artificial CO2 from a cylinder. So I get most of it, ideally, uh, naturally, and then I just tune it up a little bit. And I do that tune-up, you're right, in this process. Okay, so it, it gets it gets any, any CO2 is going to happen at the last stage. Not any, but if it's getting any late, I mean, addition, yeah, if, yes, if yeah. you were if you were adding it from a from a CO two, that's right, and and I'm using CO two to transfer it too, because at this point it's carbonated okay. and it's closed, yeah, so I'm adding CO two in. It's called counter pressure transferring. So I get pressure on the main keg, so it's not losing carbonation. That's right. That's okay. right. Yeah, and I know that you know the the clarification process and how exactly it takes place to settle out. The lees mm-hmm. is is a major topic. So, mm-hmm. can you shed a little bit of light on how to get rid of all this dead yeast? Well, yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of variables in that, and, and, li- and like you're <laughs> saying, kind of the theme of the show. Yeah, I'm yeah. And so, so like the mash has a lot to do with it, right? The the wort uh, quality and and what uh, temperature range you had in the mash, what process you did. You know, handling the the grind, and you know, is that because like in the mash, like if you don't, if you use certain temperatures, like you might get more starches as opposed to that's sugars. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. So that's a that's a part for sure. Okay. And then uh, uh, throughout the way, there's all these opportunities for it to get cloudy. One thing that comes up a lot is the proteins at certain temperatures uh, when it's not filtered will throw a cloud. You know, and it's called a chill haze. You've probably heard this term so that's all influenced in different ways and there's there's now modern additives you can add to uh the kettle to break those down so that you don't end up with the chill haze or whatnot but in terms of clarification cold is the thing in time you know and then soft racking you know racking quietly without disturbing the leaves the more racks the merrier without it getting contaminated uh and cold so cold time and quietness that's that's uh, that's the trick. But again, there's a lot of variables in that. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like there's always a lot of variables. Yeah, yeast strains. Speaking of yeast, some yeasts are more flocculent than others. What's that? So mean? some yeasts will flock out. Will will uh, kind of bind up to each other and settle out. Other yeast strains will stay in suspension a lot longer and continue and are like kind of lighter, fluffier. So some of the traditional real ale yeasts in England where they're still keg conditioning, serving straight out of the vessel, some of those traditional yeasts are notoriously incredible flockers. They will make a brilliantly clear beer very fast. And other strains will, you know, stay in suspension and be cloudy no matter what you do. That's another big variable in it. All these yeast strains, though, they're all the they're all the same species. So they're they're all 
technically Saccharomyces cerevisiae, so they're 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 all the uh, uh, same species, but different varieties, strains. Right. They're strains. There is so many strains; it's unbelievable, and they mutate. You know, these these yeasts are going through generation and regeneration so fast mm-hmm. that they can mutate pretty fast. So repitching and reusing a yeast over some generations, you'll notice it start to change majorly. And some breweries will keep it going continuously and becomes kind of their own proprietary strain, you could say, their own kind of house strain. And well, that's what I've always, heard. Character. I've always heard that about the, the way that different styles in different regions, you know, mm-hmm. like why... Ireland is famous for its stouts and Germany is famous for its lagers. Is it it was a combination of both, you know, generations of using specific yeast strains in that specific place. And the other thing that everybody always says is the character of their water. Yep. Yep. Do you do you just use the your water straight? Oh yeah, it's phenomenal water. I'm so blessed. So grateful for this water. What are, what are the characteristics of this water? It's very clean, very clean. It's um, very neutral. It's just so tasty on its own, right? So it's not hard at all, right? So it won't produce the characteristic flavors of a Burton ale. You know, that Burton's water is very hard. And the way that that interacts with the hop compounds creates its own profile that, you know, I couldn't replicate without Burtonizing the water. Okay, I've is, heard of I've heard of people yeah. using like additives. Yeah. To... <laughs> so long ago, I used to play around with that for the different styles, you know. But I gave up a long time ago. It's a pain in the butt, and yeah. I happen to be more into local terroir. You know, I, I I love what I've got, and it's okay with me that I can't brew a Burton ale. I'll brew. They I'll, they do it. They do it exactly, <laughs> and I'll drink it there or drink it wherever I can get it. But um. Here I brew what I got, and and I'm just so grateful for the water because it makes incredible beer. What styles do you find that you think, you know, your setup here and you and all your knowledge and your water and all this stuff, mm-hmm. like what do you think are your sort of characteristically best that you like the most products? So, man, I like them all. They're, they're, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the using the local flora, you know, the local plants is something that's just so unique to right here. And um, so I really appreciate the the flavors and the aromatics and the other characteristics that you get from what we have right here. I also love the lagers. It's a favorite of mine. It's It takes a lot more work. I get this amazing malt from Bomberg, Germany. That's all organic. And oh man, it's just Phenomenal, but I also love the pale ales, and and you know my mainstay is a porter, really. Uh-huh. You know that's kind of my day in day out. I, I really like roast. I'm I'm kind of a coffee head, even though I don't drink coffee every day. But um, I like that kind of roasty, dark, chocolatey mm-hmm. aspect as well. And I love to blend them all. So you know, it's for me, it's about the moment. You know, it's about what's going on, who is there, what's the weather like, what's the season, right. you know, what do I have? I'm really glad that, you, that you're that you so into making lagers because at least in, in, in the American sort of craft beer scene, they don't get near as much attention, obviously because they take so much longer to make. Yeah, that's one of the biggest reasons is the economics of it. They're very expensive. This is just our era. I mean, in the 1800s, it was all lager, or there's, you know, loggers took off and were big. I mean, that's why Budweiser became what it was, because the loggers back then were phenomenal. Yeah. You know? I think that loggers will come back in, in the scene, and they're already starting to... I've seen, yeah, there's they're, more and they're more really of them starting. now. Almost, yeah. every, almost all of the sort of mid-range brewers mm, will put out at least yeah, one now. Yeah, you're going to see them come on the rise, I do believe, you know. You know, the IPA craze is still holding on pretty heavy. I'm impressed at how long this IPA craze is going. But um, loggers are starting to come up. And hopefully we're going to get back, again, porters and, you know, some other. It's just a magnificent time for beer. We are so lucky. I mean, wow, what a variety we get to get to. And it's really only in the last what 30 or 40 years that it's really taken off it's true it's true i'm just so grateful to be born when i was (laughs) (laughs) you said three weeks is kind of your standard that's 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 like where i consider it like um and that's general okay um there's variables in there but um that's as soon as 
I would consider it starting to be drinkable. But every beer has its peak. You really don't know its peak until you hit it and go over it. I find that these ales that I'm brewing tend to come into their peak in about the three-month range. So three weeks, if I was hard up, I'd start drinking it. But generally, I have enough stock that I can let it sit and, you know, a couple months. And then hopefully I'll get it all drunk before I find that it's gone over the peak, mm-hmm. you know, or too far over the peak. Un- unfortunately, I, I end up sometimes with beer that because I have other beer that's better, <laughs> even though the beer is plenty drinkable, it might go beyond its peak f- much further just because I'm drinking something that's to my palate better. And, right. you know, and so it's kind of a shame sometimes that happens. You don't generally these days start making a beer with the intention, I'm going to let this age for, I'm going to make this to be aged. Oh, I sure or, do. Like a barley wine, okay. I will do that way, or a Bach. I don't do that very often, you know, once a year at the most. Okay. You know. And those are generally going to be higher alcohol. Oh, yeah. Quite a bit. Yep. What's the, what's the max alcohol you can get out of beer, 14? Maybe? Well, some people have done a lot of tricks to get it up to like 18, 19. But um, no, yeah, the, the, the strongest I end up with is more like 11, 12. Okay. You know, that's, 14 that's is like, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and for me, the, the trouble with that is the cloying sugars. It's just so overpowering, I can feel it go right up into my cheek. Is that because in order to get a beer that's that... Uh, high in alcohol, you have to, it has to start out really sweet. It has to be really strong, yeah. So, and it's just inevitable. That kind of concentration, you end up with that kind of sweetness. And are you, are you, do you get that, that level of sweetness? Does uh, that all come from the, the mash process mm-hmm. and doing it a little higher? Or do you, in the boil, do you concentrate it down even more? It does even more. It caramelizes, you know, so you get, you know, unfermentable sugars developed that way. And the okay. stronger the wort is, you know, the more sugary the wort, mm-hmm. you know, the more it caramelizes. The more potential alcohol. Right? And the more potential alcohol, yeah. So it just kind of gets more and more concentrated the stronger you go. There, typically, wines, yeasts are more alcohol tolerant. For sure. Yeah. You know, that's their... Is that what you use when you make like a barley wine too? No, I'll, I'll typically use a, a ale yeast. Okay. Mm-hmm. Sometimes a lager even. Huh. Yeah. But, uh, but a strain that you've specifically selected for being a little higher? Well, um, no. I'll, I mean, yes and no. So typically I'll do a barley wine at the end of a series of batches. So like... I'll start with a a particular yeast strain and go through a series, the first one being the lowest alcohol potential batch, and then I'll step up the next batch using the same yeast and gradually get stronger, and the terminal batch will be something like a barley wine. Okay. So it may be specific for a barley wine that I started with that yeast strain, but it may not. Okay. <laughs> and, and you're doing that because every time you use this yeast strain, it, it's evolved a little bit more to fit what you're doing. And it's, There's that, and it, got str- it gets stronger, yeah. and it's more uh, volume of slurry. So, so like that whole process I talked through about doing a starter, only I have to do that for that initial starting batch. Okay. And, and the yeast will multiply easier in a lesser gravity. So specific gravity is the way we measure the sugars. So in other words, a less potential alcohol, a weaker batch is what we grow up the yeast in. So then from there, you can start stepping up. And every time you're just getting the yeast that have survived the, the, the alcohol that came before. So now you get like super yeast who can, That's right. can manage a little, a little higher alcohol with less problems. That's right. Plus you're getting a huge amount of volume more. So like after the first initial batch, I have enough yeast in the bottom that I harvest as a slurry to pitch three batches. So, you know, when you get up to a barley wine, your pit, the pitching rate, the amount of yeast that you're actually adding is w- you need way more yeast just to begin with. So And that's because there's so many sugars that like all the all the wild bacteria in the neighborhood are like, yes, we want to get in there. <laughs> well, there is that. You need it to kick off fast and beat out anything else that got in there. That's uh-huh. for sure. But um, it's just the mortality rate. Is so, there's so much sugar to eat. Just uh, it takes a lot it's of more yeast. Them. It's harder for them. Mm-hmm. And so then once you've made the barley wine out of that batch of yeast, like That's whatever's it. left, they're not going to be able to do anything. 
Oh, in terms of yeah. leftover sugars? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. That, when they die out of that, that's it, man. Okay. Yeah, typically. So that's that's the that's the art then the progression is to take it from the you know the the four percent beer mm-hmm. all the way on up to that's how I do it yeah in a series like that okay. mm-hmm. yeah and commercially you do it that way too you know if you're if you're growing up you, you wouldn't just go and do a starter and then put that right in a barley wine you know you need to grow that through put it through its training yep put it through its training <laughs> it's got to work up to it get some muscles. How, how how many bottles do you have in your cellar? Oh, well, so I just went through and cleaned the cellar and managed to um, break it down to now I'm down to just a few. Oh. Yeah. No, I mean, it's I the have... the end of the summer, so... Well, you want to have a look? Yeah, let's go look. All right. It's a little dark back here, but... So this is the this is the mead collection here. Don't do that. <laughs> Smells like onions. Well, that's because I got onions I over there. I, yeah. I saw them right when I walked. Yeah, out. I opened yeah, the door and I was yeah. like, onions. <laughs> <laughs> this is a multi-use cellar. <laughs> but yeah, this is the collection of meads here. Okay. Got probably twenty of them. Those two back there were from the barrel. Um, the the wild smoked lager. Okay. But then this here is the stash of beer from the last brew season. And, um, and you're down to one, two, three, yeah. four, five, six, seven, eight. Down to eight, eight, eight kegs. Eight half barrels and eight plus half. a few small ones. Mm-hmm. Yep. But this keg here in the sub-cellar. Oh, man. <laughs> this is a barley wine from 2000. Oh, 2000. Oh, man, I got to get my flashlight up. I don't have one. I don't know if I can. I 2004. Wow. So that. 16 years. Yeah, and we can taste it, but it, it definitely um, it definitely has some sourness to it. But it's still drinkable. Do you ever make sours? Yeah. No, I, um, in fact, those three cakes there and those cornies there. So I've got about nine different sours currently. Oh, wow. Yeah. Cool. And, and like, like a lot of this stuff, um, it's really in the blending of them that they come into their own. Oh, so, with the sours? Oh, yeah. Because, because they can be so like dramatically different. Exactly. And they're like, well, now I need to put them together. That's together. right. One's like way grapefruit, you okay. know, and another one's got a little bit of ropey and a little bit of, you know, uh, maraschino cherry or something, you know, and uh-huh. so it's like it's the arts really in blending that stuff. Is that do me. they do the Belgians? Do they blend theirs? Oh, too? big time. Okay, oh, I didn't know time. that. Oh yeah, totally. I thought, I thought they just kind of took whatever came out. Of oh yeah, it. no, no. Uh-uh. There, there is single single barrel stuff that you know they make a big deal about, but generally, no. Like the lambics are a total blend. Okay, and, and they're, uh-huh. it's a total part of the art. It's phenomenal. I visited a bunch of Lambic breweries over there, and this one guy, Frank Bone, he, he really walked me through the whole process. It's quite, quite, like, we sampled, I don't know, 10 different barrels, and it was like, they were all different, and, it, and they were the same wart production. Wow. You know? Yeah. Because they're unique, man. Totally unique. Yeah. It's a trip. Are, are they reusing the same barrels, too, so whatever was in it before is also a thing? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And they, so they, they, uh, are wild inoculated in the cool ship. So to cool, they pump it up to the attic and open up vents and just everything, you know, gets into it. Well, they also only brew in the winter because in the summer, the microflora is out of balance and it will not be palatable. Huh. So they only do it in the, in the you know, fall, winter, spring. Okay. But they even, like this one Lambic brewery, Cantillon, they, I was visiting them and checking out their cool ship and I'm like, man, what are these these shingles on the inside of the roof and they're like oh we had to replace the roof and we were so afraid that the microflora (sighs) balance you know we'd lose it replacing the roof so we put some of the old roofing underneath just to keep that to make sure that they had some wow yeah that's amazing because it's magic man you know before modern brew science called it out as yeast it was known as god Huh? <laughs> or the magic or the, you know, inciting the life force. When did uh, that understanding of like what specific yeast was doing in beer and what its role was and 
how to separate it out. And when did that happen? Well, you know, empirically, the the, the brewers knew that the stuff in the bottom, you needed that to add and, yeah. you know, whatever. So there was a sense for sure, but it got scientifically kind of isolated in the mid-1800s. And it was actually the lager strains um, that this, this um, you know, Carlsberg in Copenhagen, Denmark, he, he went down and brought back a strain of lager yeast from a Bavarian brewery and kept it cold the whole way. And so he, he knew what was going on. And he hired some chemists and um, this guy, Emil Hansen, he was the first to isolate out a single culture. And so that, so it was late 1800s, they were, they developed how to kind of propagate monoculture and control yeast that way and to really know it. But I'm not sure what year it was they had to add yeast as one of the ingredients in the famous Reinheitsgebot, the German, uh-huh. uh, the Bavarian beer parody, uh, purity law. Right. So uh, th- it originally didn't include yeast. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. So it's just <laughs> water, hops. hops, and malt, right? And this other gunk. Yeah, they didn't include that in there. And so at some point they had to do an addendum and add yeast. <laughs> so I'm not sure what year that was, but at some point it was recognized enough and had a name like that that they had to do that. <laughs> but yeah, my my bottle collection you can see is down to just some, oh, yeah. you know. So I'm just going to pour one here because too much talk, not enough beer. It's true. I know. I'm assuming you want one, but... Absolutely. So you're going into a pitcher... I'm assuming that I'm assuming that part of the reason you're going into a pitcher is for the decanting. That's right, and the head there. Yeah, you know, that's, that's quite a head. Mm-hmm. Oh man, you even got the handle glasses. Nobody has those anymore. <laughs> I love handle. They glasses, are great. Yeah. I don't know why. I don't know. Well, I do know why. It's because pine glasses stack. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what is, this one is? This is called uh, Hunker Down Brown, and this was. Brewed right in the beginnings of the March Madness. Okay. So we do have a light, so you can see some clear. Oh my God, it smells amazing. All local hops. It smells like, oh, that's gorgeous. Nice and clean. It's got the breadiness that I like. It's nice bready, huh? Yeah, Yeah, I'm much more partial to to that range of beer Mm. flavors. I'm much less into like the floral, Mm. um, like the the IPA style. Me too. I mean, I still like an IPA, don't get me wrong, but Absolutely. but you know, it's like something I'll have before going to sleep. <laughs> yeah. They're just so big and so over the top. I, I much prefer for, you know, session beer right. having something along these lines. I like the I like the, the this style of beer too. It it has it almost has a chewiness. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't mm-hmm. have like a stickiness. Like a lot of IPAs I find that's one of the things I don't like is that they, yeah. they do have like a sticky texture. Totally. You know, yeah. whereas something like this is like you, you can almost like, like I say, chew on it. Got a real nice mouth filling quality yeah. without yeah. going. Yeah. With you. The head is, uh, is again, going back to my rather dismal career as a home brewer. Mm-hmm. My heads were always just totally disappeared or horrible yeah they were just gone immediately i mean i didn't i wasn't carbonating Mm -hmm. you know so i was relying on bottle carbonation yeah which is is part of it uh uh-huh but well so was it carbonated it was carbonated uh good you know Mm -hmm. i mean there were there were bubbles but the head just disappeared oh yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. well one of the things that influences the head retention is the vessel that you serve it in beer clean glassware actually hasn't been touched with soap Soap will break down the head, just okay. like you know the trick of taking your body oils and rubbing on. You know that'll break down the head. So detergents are what's properly used. So a lot of home brewers that you know haven't figured that out are just using soap on their glassware and stuff, and it leaves a residue and it will make the head disappear pretty rapidly. Really? Yeah. So okay. that's one you know aspect that could influence that, but. What, that's one of the drawbacks of malt extracts too. You you don't get quite the the head 
retention stuff. Does that have to do with like the amount of proteins or Mm -hmm. starches or what exactly is? The head's long chain proteins. Okay. You know, that get left behind. The, The more they're formed, the more they disappear. So like the more a beer is handled, um, you know, it, it can form and then disappear. And, you know, once, once they're formed, they're gone. Right. You know, they're, they're, they're there for as long as they are. In the ferment, they can be lost. It's one of those variables that's kind of mysterious to me at times. But I do know that brewing whole grain and not filtering, I always have great, great head. There was a time when I was using a kettle fining, it's called. So it's called Irish moss. It's basically a... Um, Gelatin of a sort. You can use different gelatins too, but this it's is carrageenan. It's carrageenan. Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's a seaweed extract. They That's right. It's sauce making quite a bit. Okay, so you're hip to it. Yeah. yeah. At one point, I was adding more and more of that stuff to a point to where it settled out a lot of those proteins ahead, and there there was no head. So um, that's one thing. Is your fining agent? You can uh, lose a lot of your head through over fining. I've stopped fining altogether because I don't mind whatever lack of clarity I might end up with. <laughs> it doesn't seem to be too bad. So. No. it's Because it's, uh... <laughs> it's, it's not entirely selective. It um, will fine out also mouthfeel and, you know, subtleties. So you can get left with something kind of insipid. And... Yeah, thinner and, you know, whatnot. More and more, I've, you know, throughout my brew career, I've just simplified more and more questioned all the things that, you know, I, I don't use any chemicals whatsoever, you know, in the whole brewing process. Rely on temperature and, you know, ingredients and doing all the steps that I know to do. And I open ferment and no no chemical sanitizers, none of that. But uh, it takes it takes um, evolving to that. I mean, I started in the full chemical school and over yeah. time I've simplified more and more. You know, again, as brewers, we're really just yeast ranchers. It's, you know, we're drinking their excrement. <laughs> Happens to be fine excrement, but yeah. nonetheless, it's what they, you know, poop out. <laughs> so it's, it's really all about the yeast. All the variables are important. All the ingredients are important. You know, they say it's the water. Well, yeah, it's, it's all of it. But, you know, it's the yeast are what make the beer. You're just making food for the beer. For food for the yeast, I mean, you know. And whichever specific ones those happen to be. Take the same stuff and put them. That's right. Feed it to different yeast, you get a different. Yeah. Yeah, I used to really love to do that. Make a wort and, you know, a bunch of different yeasts and taste them all. And, of course, there's some similarities from the same wort, but drastically different. I mean, the wow. yeast strain is really, it's the magic, man. It's the life. I mean, the barley's life, too, you know, malt. Malt is, you know, you're... It, bringing these enzymes back alive. And there's so much life involved with it, for sure. But the yeast are like the freaking live life. Jack the Pantry is a production of KBBI AM 890 in Homer, Alaska. It's produced and hosted by Jeff Lockwood. Today's guest was Lassa Holmes. The theme music is String Quartet Opus 10, Movement 2 by Claude Debussy, performed by Kotor Ebane. This is the fifth episode of the summer 2020 season of Check the Pantry. Your financial donation as a listener makes this and other KBBI programs possible. Visit the KBBI public radio website at kbbi.org support to help produce programs like this.
Thank you. 